0: I invite you to turn to the morning text found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you're looking in the pew Bible, that's page 1390. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit.
1: Last week we saw from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, that the destiny of the church, the body of Christ, is to be the fullness of, with which Christ fills all in all. Our destiny, and not just ours, but the whole universal body of Christ, is to be that fullness with which Christ fills everything. And we found the key that unlocked the meaning of that phrase in Ephesians 3.10, which I'll read. The manifold wisdom of God will be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God means to magnify the glory of his wisdom and all of his other attributes to all the authorities in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He means to be known as God through his son, who is the reflection and express image of his glory. And he intends to make all of that known through the church. The fullness of him who is filling all in all with his glory through the church. Now, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. He lived, moved and had his being in the Old Testament, which was full of hope. For Israel, full of promises, full of a destiny for Israel. In fact, that created a tremendous problem for Paul. Because the very destiny that we spent a half an hour last week opening up from Ephesians 1.23 for the church, the Old Testament says belongs to Israel. As Israel's destiny. And here Paul comes along, and develops it and says, it's the church's destiny. It's the church of Jesus Christ that's going to fill all things with the glory of Christ. And it, it was a problem. Now, let me try to create the problem for you, since we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as Paul was, who was a, an expert rabbi, in Deuteronomy 14, 2, for example, Moses reminds Israel with these words, you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord, your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. So the fundamental thing about Israel is that God chose Israel. God made Israel his own or as Isaiah 43:1 says, "Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. <laughs> just a, if you were Israel and you heard words like that coming out of Almighty God's mouth, I would think that you would just soar. When a great person says to you, You're mine, you feel good. That's a great destiny to belong to God that way. Now, the heart core essence of the covenant that God made with his chosen people goes like this. Genesis 17, 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your descendants after you to be God to you and to your descendants after you. The heart of the covenant that God made with his people is I'll be God for you and you'll be my people. So that when the Exodus comes along a few hundred years after the initiating of the covenant and God reaffirms the covenant when he brings his people out of out of Egypt, goes like this. I will take you for my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. So the heart of the covenant now of this chosen people with this chosen people is you're my people and I am your God. All my godness now belongs to you for your benefit forever and ever unto all your descendants. Paul, in Romans nine, spells out for us the fact that he knows this, he's not unaware of this awesome destiny for Israel Because he unpacks for us the specifics that it implies. He says in Romans 9, 4. To them belongs the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And according to the flesh, theirs is the Christ who is God Overall, blessed forever. Amen. Now that is some destiny. To belong to that people is an awesome thing. They are the people with whom God is going to fill the universe with his glory. Now that's spelled out very explicitly in Isaiah 49.3. Listen. God said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The destiny of Israel, having been chosen, having been covenanted with, having been filled with all the blessings of the sonship, the glory, the worship, the law, the Christ. The destiny is glory. I'm going to glorify myself through you. You're going to be my glory. I'm going to showcase me and my perfections through you to all the universe. Here's another way of saying it Jeremiah 13:11 He made them his own possession that they might be for him a people a name a praise and a glory that Israel might be for him a people a name a praise and a glory You're going to glorify me you are going to be me to the world If I am perfect and full of glory, I'm going to so infuse it into you that I'm going to place you out there and point to you when I want to glorify me and people will see you and give glory to me because they see so much of me in you, Israel. Now, Paul knows this. He knows this about Israel. And he says, the church of Christ, Jew and Gentile, you will be that. Now that's a problem. How can he say that? How can he just take what was Israel's and just start saying it's yours, mine? I'm not a Jew by tradition or genealogy. I called up the head rabbi over Temple Israel a few years ago. It was Stephen Pinsky at the time and we knew each other from luncheon and breakfast meetings and I just was so burdened, not just to talk parking and downtown politics with these with this Jewish person. As, as I called him up and I said, "Steve, would you have lunch with me to talk about Jewish Christian stuff, man to man?" He said, "Sure." And so we we went to Rudolph's over on Lindale, not Pizza Hut. We went to Rudolph's. And we had a conversation for about an hour and a half, which was uh, frank and at times very tense. As we talked to each other about what we believed about salvation and the Messiah and uh, the way to God. Let me sum up for you the conclusion that Stephen Pinsky gave me at that time. The head rabbi of the biggest synagogue in Minnesota. He said, uh, John, the way I see it is this. There's a Jewish covenant, and that's the way we get to God. And there's a Christian covenant, and that's the way you get to God. And they are different covenants, and Jews don't have to become Christians, and Christians don't have to become Jews to get to God. Now, that's a very common position today. He learned that from liberal Protestants who engage in Jewish-Christian dialogue. The two covenant Philosophy of Jews and Christians getting right with God on their own separate parallel tracks is common parlance among many people engaged in Jewish Christian dialogue today. And that view is going to hold sway wherever people submit to the new authority of politically correct speech instead of submitting to the old authority of the Bible. The new authority today, and believe me, though the word authority is never used, it is a powerful, all-subduing authority that I'm about to talk about here The new authority today of politically correct speech says that any idea that can be made to sound tolerant, respectful of differences, pluralistic and compassionate is a good idea to endorse. Now, notice I did not say is a true idea. Because truth is emphatically a politically incorrect concept. It is not a permissible word. It is not allowed on the agenda. By the policeman of the politically correct speech. Authority. The first and great commandment of the new authority is, thou shalt not make anyone feel put down. Now, mark this. It does not matter what your intentions are when you speak. That is irrelevant. That's a truth issue. That's irrelevant. It does not matter what you mean when you talk. That is irrelevant. That's a truth issue. What matters is... How does somebody respond and feel about what you have just said? The truth claim is arrogant, intolerant, disrespectful of differences, undemocratic and uncompassionate. And therefore, not false. That's another politically incorrect word to use, but off the agenda. It may not be talked about. The victim, therefore, today is always right. The victim is the final arbiter, not of truth. That's off the agenda, but of what may be said. So, therefore, when you say something, your intention, your meaning is not at issue. What's at issue is how people are going to take you. And you have no recourse. There is no defense before the victim. You can protest all you want about I didn't mean it that way or that's not what these words stand for in the English language. And it is totally irrelevant. The victim wins because the final authority is I feel put down and there is no defense Therefore, when in our atmosphere today, where this new authority has all kinds of submissive people bowing before it. When you say there are not two covenants. There are not two ways to God. There is not a Jewish way without Jesus and a Christian way with Jesus that leads to God. When you say that you will be criticized as intolerant, lacking respect for differences, undemocratic, unpluralistic, offensive, anti-Semitic, and dangerous, increasingly dangerous. The issue of truth will not even be raised. The issue is, how did it make them feel? And how proud did it make you look and sound? How arrogant are you to presume to speak truth that others and you should submit to? The whole issue today is not a truth issue, according to the police of political correctness. It is an issue that will be settled by the subjective whim of the victim, always, And without recourse. Right into the courts. So this morning, I just want to make you aware that as I present to you what I'm about to say, Jewish and Christians. You must choose. You have to choose your authority. You will either submit to the authority of political correctness that is bringing millions of people under its sway Or you will choose the Bible as your authority. I don't say the choice right now is between political correctness and me. And therefore, I want to direct your attention to the word. So let's go to Ephesians 2 and start at verse 12 and see whether or not this idea that Stephen Pinsky laid on the table at Rudolph's will stand. And is true. Verse 12 is a glorious and horrible picture of the way it was with me and you before Jesus met us. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. That is the Messiah. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's us. That's me. Without Jesus. Without the coming of the bridge builder and the reconciler. Now that all gets reversed in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Meaning from the commonwealth of Israel. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are right in God's house now. So something happened there. There was a reversal between verse 12 and verse 19. And that same reversal and the summary of it is described in verse 6 of chapter 3. Just a few verses down in your Bible. The mystery of Christ is to be specific that Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, what happened? What happened between verse 12 and verse 19, verse 6, that that says you were all these things. And now we were separated from Christ and now he has drawn near to us. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and now we are fellow citizens with Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise, and now we are fellow partakers of the promise. We were without hope, and now we're heirs of everything God has to give. We were without God, and now we're in his house. Something phenomenal has happened. And according to these verses, 13 to 18... What happened was not the opening of a separate, independent, parallel way of salvation alongside a Jewish one. On the contrary, the stress of these verses, as we'll see in detail in a moment, is one savior, one cross, one body, one new man, one spirit, one father. Here's the sentence that sums up the message this morning. And it's the answer to Paul's question, or Paul's problem. Israel, true Israel, became the church. And the church emerged as the true Israel. Now that will take some defending from Scripture, but you need to hear that. As what emerges from these verses. Jesus is the point that unites the church and Israel. And in him we become one body. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free. Male nor female. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is the unifying fact. Now, let's be more precise. Let's go to these verses and pose this question. In fact, um, study questions are available on this message for small group leaders. And one of the questions I asked on that list of questions, as I wrote them last night, was find all the uses of the word one in verses 13 to 18. And what do you suppose the implication of? Of that four or five fold repetition of one, 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 one is. Now let's just walk through these verses so that you can hear what I think the implication is and draw your conclusions from the text. Verse 14. He is our peace who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. Christ did not come to open another way. He came to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy in union with the Jews. 15 middle of the verse. That in himself, he might make the two Jew and Gentile into one new man. Thus establishing peace. Now, what's this picture of a new man? What, what is that? Formerly, there were Jewish people over here and there were Gentile people over here. And by and large, they didn't like each other. There was circumcision and uncircumcision. There was kosher food and there was unkosher food. There was ritual and there was pagan religion and there was uncleanness and there was animosity and enmity between them. And this verse says. That Christ came to make those two people. One new person. In him. Now that in himself is the key to what this one new man means. The one new man is Jesus. And these Gentiles and these Jews become part of the one new man by uniting with Jesus through faith. And as they unite to Jesus, their head, a body is formed for the head. And that head and that body make a man, the man, Christ Jesus, his body, you. There is one man, Jesus, with a body and a head. You are the body. You are the one. New man, the body of Christ, verse 16. And that Christ might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God. There it's made explicit. Wasn't explicit in verse 15. Now it is. The body is one. And we join the body by being attached to the head through faith. And now we are the one new man, the body of Christ. Neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile, but rather Christ is all and in all. Verse 18. For through him, that is through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Not two spirits, not two agencies, one spirit working in both to make One access to the father. Now, this summary of oneness in our movement towards God is made very explicit in summary form in chapter four, verses four to six. You know this text. You've heard it, I believe, in various contexts. Let me just read it. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all. Paul's answer to the question and the problem of how does the destiny of Israel relate to the destiny of the church? Paul's answer is Israel becomes the church in Christ And the church emerges as the true Israel. Now, that is not explicitly in this text. I'm reaching to Romans and a few other places to spell this out, which is implicit here. So let me just read one or two key verses. Romans 9, 6 says, not all Israel is Israel. What that means is ever since Ishmael was born and Esau was born, not Isaac, not Jacob. There has been a narrowing in the people of God. Physically and ethnically, the Jews are treated with extraordinary specialness by God. But inside that ethnic people, there is a true remnant who trust in the living God. When Jesus comes into the world, he is a litmus paper inserted into ethnic Israel. And every Jew that cleaves to this Jesus is true Israel. And every one of them, like the Pharisees who pushed him away, were not part of true Israel, even though they were Jews. Here's the way John put it in his epistle. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. Here's the way Jesus put it in John 5.23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. In other words, if you reject Jesus, Jew or Gentile. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. And if you reject God, you are not part of the true Israel. The true Israel are the Jews who cleave to the Messiah, Israel, in person. And therefore, there are not two separate saving covenants. There are not two saved peoples One Jewish without Jesus and one Gentile with Jesus. Verse 16, I believe, is probably the most important verse in this paragraph because it gives the foundation, the unifying foundation of this unified body and access to the unified God. It says Christ reconciled them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God, to God, Through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now, think about this. Up until that verse, the enmity being talked about is the enmity between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. I believe in this verse when he says, reconciled to God, not just to each other, but to God. And then he says, because he removed the enmity. He means it not only to be the enmity that is horizontal, but the enmity that was vertical. He's saying, Jews, you need to be reconciled to God through the Messiah's blood shedding. Gentiles, you need to be reconciled to God through the Jewish Messiah's blood shedding. I do not have two ways to God with some other way of getting reconciled. There is one foundation of reconciliation, the pouring out of the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, The true Israel may come into this and any Gentile who will be united to Jesus may come into this. And what is created is one man, Jesus, the true Israel. So that Israel becomes the church and the church emerges as the true Israel. And what was said of the destiny of Israel comes true in this one new man. And what was said in Ephesians 1.23 last week comes true in the church as the body of Christ. There are not two ways. He was wrong. Two implications as we close. Being the body of Christ at Bethlehem And anywhere else means you and I, Gentiles, have been brought into a Jewish inheritance. We are saved through a Jewish Messiah. We read a Bible written almost entirely by Jews. I don't think Luke was a Jew. I think everybody else who wrote in the Bible was a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. The root of the covenant with Abraham supports you. You, the branches, do not support the root. God forbid that any of you or anybody else would take what I have said this morning and twist it into anti-Semitism. Mark it. It will be so twisted. Because to say... That Jews must believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, in order to be reconciled to God, will be, by the politically correct thought police, called intolerant. It will be called disrespectful of pluralism. It will be called uncompassionate. It will be called anti-Semitic. And I will be accused of enhancing Hate crimes against Jews. I read it in the paper every other day. You must choose. Do you believe that God is an anti-Semite when he says, I give my son for the salvation of my people, the Jews? And if I say that, am I then one? No. It is highly cruel and highly anti-Semitic to suggest to the Jews that they don't need Jesus. You want to hate somebody? Tell them they don't need Jesus. You want to send somebody to destruction? Make light of Jesus and His necessity in their life. Don't let the police befuddle your brain. The Bible is clear on this. There is one new man. The man Christ Jesus. And let us pray. I put this at the bottom of the study questions. Let us pray with Paul, who loved his people according to the flesh with tears, saying "I would that I could be accursed for them. And then in Romans 10, when he said, My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might be saved. And he laid down his life and took stripe after stripe after stripe upon his back in the synagogues that he might save, if by any means, some. Do you? Do you cultivate relationships with Jews because you love them? They have a special claim on the gospel, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Someday the veil is going to be lifted, folks. I anticipate headlines in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, massive conversions to Christianity. That's the way I anticipate the end of the age. Second implication, the body of Christ is a body where unreconciled relationships are at odds with the reality of Christ. We're a reconciled body. We exist because a peacemaker came into the world and at the cost of his infinitely valuable life reconciled us to God, removing the enmity that we might have peace with Him and coming to Him in one body have peace with each other. If you live in unreconciled relationships, you are so at odds with the reality of the body that you know what will happen in the long run? You will start... To feel like you're not part of the body. That's God's medicine. The trigger of guilt is a blessed pain in the human brain. To say, it isn't right. You can't be this way in the body. bought by the blood of Jesus for him and for each other. And therefore, I call you today at the end of the service with the prayer teams or alone. Don't let any unreconciled relationship last beyond this day. It's dangerous. It's out of sync with who you are and who the body is and with the glory of Christ who bought our reconciliation. Let's pray. So these two things, Father, I lift before you now. I lift the beloved Jewish community in the Twin Cities, Temple Aaron, Temple Israel, and the others. And I ask that on this Christian Lord's Day, as they have finished their worship on Friday evening, some on Saturday, that there would be a move of your Holy Spirit while we pray, across thousands of Jewish persons to quicken and awaken their sense of need for the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Lead them back to their own prophets, I pray, and help them to see the truth that is in Jesus. And I just pray for these people right now for whom that prayer that I'm praying feels arrogant. I pray for them. I pray for people who've been so influenced by the contemporary hatred of the concept of truth that to pray that prayer feels presumptuous.
0: Oh, God help us. God help us.
1: To recognize the truth and what an awesomely anti Semitic thing it is not to share Christ the way to glory. And then Lord, I pray for reconciliation in this body in Jesus' name.